0: For the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College, All Things Hillsdale, are located at Hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations dating back to eight, uh twenty thirteen. I was gonna say eighteen thirteen. Uh, but that would date us, uh, are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. You can sign up for the free speech digest that Hillsdale College makes available by going to Hillsdale.edu. Find him Primus and give me your email, your mailing address, your snail mail address. It is absolutely free. It is a wonderful addition to your reading material. And Dr. Larry Arnold, I begin with an obvious, very. Re- We're going to do Article 1, Section 8, uh, uh, paragraph 4 in just a moment. But Sarah Sanders last night, the press secretary, tweeted out just spoke to POTUS and General H.R. McMaster. Contrary to reports, they have a good working relationship and there are no changes at NSC. The world is full of uh, McMaster out at the wall street journal the wall street uh, the new york times the washington post and it's just it must be wearying to people to have to feed the media parlor game of uh, musical chairs when they 're trying to get their work done
1: yeah yeah it uh, uh, so trump 's Trump's fired a lot of people, i guess or so several have quit and in general, the changes have been an improvement, right? I mean, I think the Secretary of State thing is great. And, great. Uh, and great. Uh, and I think the CIA thing is great, if they will confirm her. And, you know, they uh, the rumors about McMaster, and that's all they are, rumors, is, uh, is that it would be John Bolton. Well, that wouldn't be the end of the world. But uh, McMaster's a good guy, and I hope he stays.
0: Well, there is a... Uh, My my sources tell me McMaster wants his fourth star and there's only so much time you can stay as a three star without getting your fourth star. So he's got to move on. And they put a and and there are some complications here, which people talk about. But there's civilian military gap. uh, You retire as a three star if you don't move on to get a four star. You've got to have somewhere to go to go somewhere. You've got to move aside the guy who's currently running U.S. Army Pacific or the guy who's running uh, Army Korea. Uh, They've been told to be on standby because the president likes McMaster. But that doesn't fit the narrative, right? So the narrative in Washington, D.C. is chaos, when, in fact, what it ought to be is after a year, Trump knows what he's doing, knows who he likes, wants to replace Shulkin, wants to replace maybe Ben Carson, maybe wants to replace Sinke. But I watch things like uh, bad press for Scott Pruitt. He loves Scott Pruitt. Yeah. He thinks Scott Pruitt's doing a hell of a job. And yeah. and they make up stories about Pruitt's travel, which is necessary for him, given the crazies on airplanes. They make up stories about his phone booth, which is necessary. He's a friend. My son worked there. Everyone knows i got a conflict. But take that as it is. But they put in a skiff because you can move markets with an EPA phone call. Yeah. people, And it's just as Chuck Todd admitted on this show yesterday, there's an institutional bias against property rights people at the EPA. And so they're out after Pruitt with knives, but it really is dishonest reporting, deeply dishonest reporting to report chaos where there does not exist chaos and and people are out with the president when they are in fact up with the president. And they know better, Larry Arndt.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I you know, I, I, if the election were today, I, I hear and read that we would get hammered you know the Republicans would get hammered, and uh, uh, and you know Trump that'll be bad for Trump, and all that's true, and it's plausible that uh, that one could run against Trump being for many of the things he's for, but without the drama, and you know Trump does provoke a lot of drama, and I think he does it on purpose, and then that's inflamed by you know the media. And they and it makes a great story. Right. But but this this thing with Tillerson, you know, he appointed to say he appointed you know, there's been messes in the White House. There always are. And Trump is a newcomer. Right. Who does he know? And he he appointed a great cabinet and he got the judges right from the get go. And and uh, now he's making adjustments and and uh, I bet he makes some more. But I don't know about McMaster.
0: Well, I remember Reagan Haig, and that just did not gel. All right, he was going to be the vicar of foreign policy. That's what he appeared on Time Magazine. Uh, at the assassination, he appeared in the press room. I'm in control here. Of course, he wasn't. That was because Meese. So I was with General Meese this week. Uh, he was with Meese, Baker, and Deaver at the at the hospital. He wasn't in control there. He's just trying to project calm, and he did the opposite. But he was gone after a year, and then Schultz stayed for seven. And I don't know how long Pompeo stays, but he gets along very well with the president. And our mutual friend, Tom Cotton, uh, gets along very well with the president. He's figuring out who his friends are, right? Yeah. And that matters to a president.
1: Yeah, and just friends and also who produces. You know, the pressure at the VA comes in part from the fact that the VA might not be right yet. And, you know, Trump wants it done. And yeah. uh, he, he uh, I think, when I think of him... I don't know him. I mean, I've met him, but, you know, I don't know him. But when I think of him, I think of something Napoleon always said. Generals would come in if they lost the battle, and they would explain why they lost it and how they just, you know, this and that and the next thing. And he'd always say, you know, I need generals who are lucky.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, they would be lucky if they sent Jim Talent over to VA. I don't know if Jim Talent wants that job. I, I expect Pompeo will offer him a job. but. If they wanted someone with ethics and smarts and the credibility of the Senate, and that place needs to, to change, and they, I, I thought Shulkin's a good guy, but if you really want to change a place, you have to put someone with some ties to the Senate in. Uh, Larry, Aaron, let's go to the Department of Justice for a minute. I had the Attorney General on. I like I like Jeff Sessions a lot, and mm-hmm. he was he he came on to talk about nationwide injunctions how little tiny district courts can enjoin the President of the United States, uh, and not just the person before their court. How not one of those had occurred for 175 years, and up until Trump, only 22 had occurred in the time between 175 years and Trump. And in the first year of Trump, 22 of them had occurred. And so we have an out-of-control district court bench populated by Team Obama radicals. And Jeff Sessions talked about the rule of law, and this has to change. This, I think, is is clearly not in keeping with the Constitution in Article 3. We're going to go to Article 1, Section 8, after the break, but let's talk a little bit about this. District court judges are not supposed to be running the United States.
1: No. And, uh, you know, the rule of law, it, it depends on the separation of powers, and, and uh, if... A, a general order from one judge puts a stop to the things. Then there's the executive branch, and they half the time they're a legislative branch too. So that's dangerous. And I will tell you something I learned this week uh, because of the 30-hour rule in the Senate that they debate every appellate, no, every district, you know, trial judge at the federal level for 30 hours. There are actually more vacancies now than there were a year ago and and they'll and they uh, a friend of mine told me we'll never catch up at this yep. rate. So one thing about these things we're talking about is the Congress is in a stalemate and I would love to see them do something about the filibuster uh, because you know the, the way we do the filibuster today, it's worth making the distinction. The filibuster is an old thing, it comes from Britain. So before America. And and it is a rule that in the House of Commons in Britain and Lords in Britain, and then in the Senate of the United States, never the House, as long as there's somebody there with something to say that's pertinent, the debate will continue. And then when there's no longer anybody with something to say that's pertinent, then then they have a vote. And that means that the Senate is a great debating society. And all of the senators famed for eloquence, come from the time before they changed the filibuster in two ways. And one way was they said, uh, you don't actually have to be there talking. You can just tell the clerk, and then it takes, you know, close vote to move on. But then the second was the Senate can then go on with other business. And that means that, you know, something never gets to the floor. In other words, the filibuster has been converted into a thing that stops all debate.
0: You know? it's a it's a it's an aberration and mitch mcconnell can fix this by using the reed rule thanks to harry reid but i want to comment on something you said there are 17 vacancies in the appeals court right now seven nominees are pending three are pending for future vacancies so that means that there are seven to ten that are open there are 121 district court vacancies only 45 nominees do you realize california does not have one nominee for a district court because diane feinstein has been given an extra constitutional authority senators love to give each other power shouldn't we just stop this larry aren't the constitution does not give the senate the right to nominate it gives the president the right to nominate
1: that's right and that's see that's all and you know the case that i make when i you know i i go to washington and visit the kirby center and talk to important people a fair amount and i don't i very seldom talk to them about whatever's in the news this week I say things like that, right? Because just remember, and uh, it's not just getting on and voting. We have to remember we're supposed to be reasonable, and that means they should argue
0: things a lot and then vote. And they should argue the right to, to nominate judges, and they should vote on these judges. I would do an entire slate. And by the way, I could come up with 121 nominees in my sleep tomorrow. So could Leonard Leo. So could Don McGahn. But we need... Mitch McConnell and the Senate to actually act. This stuff matters. I'll be right back with Larry Arn talking about this. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn and I also have our conversations dating back with he and his colleagues all the way to 2013, collected at hughforhillsdale.com. Dr. Arn, Article 1, Section 8, it's the legislative power. And in Article 8, Section 8, there are listed a group of uh, of um, uh, eighteen paragraphs, uh, paragraph four provides Congress shall establish an uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States now it's interesting to me that both naturalization and bankruptcies are put here because you really can 't have two sets of rules for either of them, or people will shop between the states. And therefore, the federal government is clearly committed the deal on naturalization. We are in charge at the federal level. And so these sanctuary cities, and now California, a sanctuary state, are in essence seceding from the union. Are they not? Yeah,
1: yeah. And, uh, you know, we who live in the Midwest, former one of me, a former Californian, look on that with mixed feelings. <laughs>
0: but, <laughs> <laughs> they're going to yeah, they're going to be bankrupt and drag us all into the ba- black hole, but but they are it's not just the California but Denver, I mean all these posturing peacocks of local politics are playing local politics unaware that they are in essence recreating what the southern states did to defend their institution of slavery.
1: That's right. And uh you know, the law, right? Uh, the laws are, uh, to quote James Madison, voluminous and changeable. And what that means is nobody obeys them. There are so many laws now, right? And then the idea that these cities can, you know, can decide who's an American citizen, effectively, that, that it's just on its face obvious that won't work. And, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of ranting in politics now. And so, you know old rules like ex post facto laws right you can't you can't punish somebody for a law that didn't exist when he committed the act there, there there's lots of calls to waive that about whatever the latest rage is just lately me too and all that and and the truth is human beings are not to be punished except through the standards of the law And that means the legislature passes the law and the executive enforces it and judges determine whether you're guilty or not and whether the law is constitutional or not in your case. And those are separate acts. And so the city of San Francisco doesn't have a place in that process.
0: Yeah, And the city of Berkeley, when it announces that ICE is preparing to conduct uh, arrests of people in the country illegally, is hampering the federal government in the same way, and I want people to—it's—it's it's as though South Carolina sees Fort Sumner. Uh, it is—it is no different in—it is different in kind, but is not different in nature. And the states that pass dope laws to to uh, to make marijuana legal are contesting the federal government supremacy clause. And I, and I want to s- uh, skip down to the um, to the uh, paragraph eighteen to make Congress shall make all laws that, which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all powers vested by this Constitution of the government of the United States or any department thereof. The necessary and proper clauses there to give us additional congressional things. They are allowed to have an ICE as a result of that. They are allowed to have a Schedule I prohibited drug as a result of that. Um, I think we're illiterate, Larry Art. Yeah. I think we've become constitutionally illiterate.
1: Yeah, and I think... Uh constitutionally uh, indisposed, right? What does that... Lots of people listening... Well, maybe not listening to your show, but lots of people in California, lots of educated people will say, what does that even matter, that argument you just made? We should just do what's right. And that means each entity of us should be allowed to do what is right, they say. And and uh, it is certainly true that every American you and me included, and we may have to assert that sometime in the future, have a right to rebel against the government if it oppresses our rights. But that's not a constitutional or a legal right. That's a right of revolution that exists in the law of
0: nature. So the problem with the South, you mentioned, is they wouldn't talk about that because the slaves were listening. Yes, and when we come back, in fact... We'll go to Section 9. Uh, Larry and I are back on our march through the Constitution. Article 1, Section 9 uh, is the first of the no's, and it has to do with the slaves who were listening. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, including an application to attend this um, overwhelmingly popular now institution, are available at hillsdale.edu. And you will find at the hillsdale.edu a course in the Constitution, but Dr. Arn and I are, are making our way leisurely through parts of it in order that they occur so as to elucidate why you might want to take the whole course and be smart. One of the things I mentioned in Jonah Goldberg's book, Dr. Arne, four out of ten American high school students cannot name one of three branches of the federal government, and the same percentage cannot name one of the rights enumerated in the First Amendment. Now, that used to be fifth-grade civics, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It, uh, it's uh, it, it's so bad, it's almost hard to find words for it. It uh, To not know, you know, because if, if you don't know that, by the way, forget that you don't know the Constitution. You don't know what government does and what you think is. Things are just decided by agencies you never heard of by some process that's never explained. So one of the reasons people don't know that any of that stuff is because the government so often doesn't work that way anymore.
0: Yeah, I I befuddle my law students by saying if you present yourself at the Department of Motor Vehicles and you ask for a license and the person across the counter says to you, no, what are you going to do? Yeah. And and they're 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 dumbfounded, right? They they depend upon the regular operation uh, of a non-arbitrary bureaucracy, but the bureaucracy is often arbitrary. They just don't see it. And the DMV is often slow, and they understand that and maddening. But if they just turned you down, what would you? do? They have no idea about yeah. how you would check an abusive agency, and it's because they don't know about our Constitution. Let's go to Article One, Section Nine. This first paragraph is. One of the most important paragraphs in the Constitution, very little understood. The migration or importation of such persons, as any of the states now existing, shall think proper to admit, shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person. Well, Larry on that is an odd clause, and only you and so- I know why it's there. Would you explain to people why it's there, what it, what it tells us and what it doesn't tell us?
1: So, the, uh, there are three places in the Constitution that have to do with the institution of human slavery. Madison, in the Federalist Papers, and on the, con- on the Convention floor, makes the point that when I put in the word slave in here, because we don't want that word in the Constitution, And we don't want, ultimately, to protect that thing. Well, this is one of the three, and I'll mention what the other two are. One is the Fugitive Slave Clause, which says that persons held to service or labor in one state uh, fleeing to another will be returned. And the other is the Three-Fifths Clause that says that slaves will be counted as uh, three – it doesn't say slaves – as three-fifths of a person. And all three of those are much misunderstood. Uh, The the, the first one is is too bad it's in there. The second one is to reduce the power of the slaveholders who were effectively voting for their slaves. And this one is to preserve the slave trade for 20 years. And that's what it does. And and by the way, when the 20 years elapsed on the day that it elapsed, the the, uh, slave trade was abolished.
0: And, Larry, i like to point out, this um, emanates shame. And and there is, you've made this point many, many times, in the founding generation, there was no Calhounism. They were aware of the moral uh, stain that slavery was. They understood it. They would not refer to it. They knew they had to limit it. And, and there is a practical problem of how to kill it off. But one way to kill it off, of course, is to secure the cessation of the importation of impressed people.
1: That's right. And they uh they so, you know, eventually the great policy of forbidding slavery to spread into the land not yet incorporated states was the thing that really provoked the civil war because that was going to be effective, right? It couldn't go anywhere else anymore. And I'm proud to say that that policy was invented partially here where I work. But uh but so this this thing and and uh this is uh, so there are three places, right? And every, as you rightly point out, everyone is uneasy about this. We're, right now we're in section six of the Constitution reader in my, this, I'm teaching the Constitution class this term. And the next section is about what the founders thought about slavery. And you'll just find that there's just, as you say, no Calhounism. Everybody treated it as an evil that had to be got rid of. And, of course, they did get rid of it in more than half the Union quickly, and, and then the first time, you know, when Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin and five states came in in the Northwest Territory, the first time a free government ever grew uh, by a novel method that, that didn't treat them as colonies, slavery was forbidden in, that, in, in the Northwest Territory by the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. And that was on the motion of Virginia, which gave up the land, uh, a slave state, and, by, and led by Thomas Jefferson – a slaveholder.
0: You know, I love to go back and read Cooper Union. Lincoln makes an argument as to why the framers knew that slavery was evil and they knew what they were doing and they voted for the Northwest Ordinance and they, as a, as the Congress, not the uh, United States Congress, but as the Continental Congress, and they voted for this shame uh, infused document. They all knew Larry and, Arn. And, yeah. and that's so important uh, for, for people to understand.
1: A lot of Lincoln's speeches. So they're very beautiful, but some of them are wonderful pieces of scholarship, and that's one of the two best ones because he takes the number of people in the Constitutional Convention, and he designs from their record and things they said what did they think. And he gets, all, and he gets almost all of them acting, speaking, or both in condemnation of slavery, and the ones that uh, he doesn't get, they didn't say anything about it that he could find.
0: So, and what's interesting about that, Larry, is had no one had done that before. Yeah. And that is a work of scholarship, to go and find an important argument and to adduce it in front of a large crowd, hold their attention, and leave them without a reply.
1: Oh, yeah. There, there's a wonderful account, one of the very best accounts of a Lincoln speech by somebody who saw it. And he talks about how unimpressive he was when he walked out on the stage. He looked shabby. And then he starts speaking in this high voice, and there's few gestures. But then, after a while, and soon, it, step by step, it becomes mesmerizing. And he says that uh, that uh, you, you began to see that although he didn't move very much, his his body was moving uh, sh- precisely it, 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 on the motion of the words he was saying. And then, as he continued, and as he got toward the end his hands began to come up uh, parallel with each other and they got up to where they were sort of his hands were at the level of his shoulders and then he was you could watch his body move with each word and he and he said that throughout that speech you could hear a pin drop right and and at the end the the audience just sat there in silence when it was over because it was so powerful right and and much of the speech is parsing out these guys and How many of them did this and how many of them did that? And it's just somehow riveting the way he does it. Well,
0: you're being bulldozed. I I had occasion to reread it uh, a couple of weeks ago. And to be bulldozed by the logic, I mean, you cannot stand there afterwards and argue that slavery was intended to spread and endure. Let me go to Section 9, Paragraph 2, because this is also uh, an amazing thing that many people do not understand. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it now habeas corpus means to produce the body the writ of habeas corpus means to produce the body and this is revolutionary jonah brings it up quite a lot and i teach it always in con law that you could be disappeared from many places in the world and it's sadly true putin disappears people Um, uh, dictators in Syria have disappeared 500,000 people. You cannot be disappeared in the United States, Larry Arn.
1: That's right. And, you know, if you think about that, uh, of course, this became controversial in the Civil War, too. But this is one of the great achievements of, you know, the common law and British law, that habeas corpus became a thing in British law. And that just meant that the king, you know, who at various points would dominate courts and put 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 courts together that would do what he said, and they took that power away from him step by step and then one of the points is, you get arrested and you and you get put in the pokey and you don't even know where your loved ones are, and you get yourself a lawyer and you go to court and the and the co- court issues a writ, bring me that person, let me see that person. he will be here right and j- judges don't have armies right, and so that's a great exercise of the rule of law, and it works.
0: Uh, does it work? And and, and, there are, and they drive courts crazy because corpus. right now there is an individual being held in Iraq. Uh, an unknown individual of American descent, and the United States Army does not want to deliver them up to the courts, and the ACLU is demanding access to them, uh, arguing that the writ of habeas corpus cannot be exercised, And it uh, because it's on foreign so- soil and it's an unlawful combatant. There's some interesting legal issues. But if you and I are disappeared tomorrow, uh, well, no one will go looking for you, but my family will come for me, and they will find me. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I won't be missed. <laughs> Where, where's he who is he anyway <laughs> you know and you put yourself in peril because everyone in hillsdale can say you're in dc at the kirby center and everyone at kirby center can say he's in hillsdale and so it. It, it, you, you put yourself at real risk and uh i, I would worry about it. when we come back we're going to talk about uh section nine article eight uh paragraph eight because it's a perfect place. Uh, we've been talking about the president of Hillsdale College, not the king of Hillsdale College, not the baron of Hillsdale College, not the duke of Hillsdale College, but the president of Hillsdale College. Larry, quickly, did we invent the word president? I mean, did, did we were the first government to use it? Uh, so, so,
1: so you have to repeat that question. It, re- was,
0: the, was the president of the United States the first time that the head of a government referred to as a president?
1: Uh, yes. Preside. It's a Latin word, right?
0: They didn't have them in Rome. I think so. I think so. They had dictators. They had councils. I don't think they had presidents. And it's a uniquely civilian term. And uh, when we come back from break, we'll talk about the title of nobility clause and why we have such terms for Larry Arnn as president and uh, provost and dean we do not have dukes and baronesses and, and uh, Marquis. We do have a jefe. Dwayne is a jefe. Uh, and so we have jefes. Don't go anywhere, America. Welcome back, America Chew Hewitt. Horrible news. Uh, seven U.S. servicemen dead in a helicopter crash on the Iraq-Syria border. That follows by a day, the loss of two naval aviators off of uh, Key West. It's just been a bad week for the American military. Uh, and we will grieve for all of them. On Monday, I will bring you details, as I did, of the two, um, the lieutenant commander and the lieutenant who died in uh, Key West. Dr. Larry Arn, you got a lot of uh, veterans coming out of Hillsdale, so I know that hurts. Uh, we'll, we'll put the details in. I do want to bring up uh, Section 9, Article Paragraph 8. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States. And no person hold any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept any present emolument office or title or any kind whatever from any king, prince or foreign state. Now, the emolument clause is the latest reason to try and uh, impeach Donald Trump. And if the Democrats win back the House, they'll impeach him. I mean, they'll use the emolument clause. But I'm more interested in why no title of nobility? What were, what were the framers thinking when they did this? Uh,
1: well, they didn't like kings and stuff. <laughs> and <so> they, <laughs> you know, no man is born with saddle on his back, nor others booted and spurred to ride him by the grace of God, right? And so we're not gonna we're not gonna uh go around like a bunch of pompous toads and decorate ourselves. I I was, by the way, in a uh first time in my life, I was in a uh swearing in ceremony of Russ vote who has become deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget, and Mike Pence uh, in the White House uh, uh, conducted this ceremony. And it was very dignified, and it was Republican in its nature. That is to say, he wasn't. He, He was getting a chance, an obligation, and an opportunity to serve. That's what he was going to do. And so you know uh they, they tried to figure out what to call the President. You made a point in the break about the term "president," which I've looked it up since we made that point in the very great online etymology dictionary, and it's the first time you're right in the Constitution that the chief of State is called the president really but, okay, it yeah. was a guess okay yeah, that's right. and so how are you going to by the way, people should know about the online etymology dictionary, which is a very handy thing. just look up look up words and it, you'll find out where they come from um Anyway, they wanted it. How are we going to call him? You know, what are we going to call him? You know, not Highness, Majesty. And so John Adams proposed His Majesty. And so the rest of the founders began to mock John Adams by referring to him as his rotundity. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they were a—they're uh, not unlike Hewitt and Arn, except they it, it was mutual and not just in one direction. That, was that very difference. much so,
1: yeah. And they—you know—they had a lot of fun at each other's expense, but they—and uh, sometimes they were mean. Anyway, Mr. President, see, that's that's uh, his distinction is the holding of a civil office that he holds as a steward for the people who give it to him. And that 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 distinction, and and just think the the manners. You know, if you if you, uh, Canada is a, a great country and an excellent neighbor. I hasten to say, but I I used to marvel because you know Winston Churchill would go to Canada and the United States on mostly on the same trips, and he once took a great train ride across Canada and then back across the United States, 1929, and everybody's meeting in cha- in Canada is sir something and lord something. And he gets down here, and it's all Jim and Fred.
0: You know? ah! <laughs> <laughs> and And that is a great thing. And he was half American and reveled in that great oh, thing. That oh, is yeah. That's a good thing to end on. Next week, on to Article 2. That is about the executive. Dr. Larry Arnn, thank you, my friend. President of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. Go sign up for Imprimus right now. Enrich your mailbox every month with a a copy of a speech given on the campus of Hillsdale College. All of our conversations about the Constitution and everything back to Homer. And Indeed, perhaps someone said to me the other day, Larry Arnn is going to be best remembered. I disagree with this, but but... I was told he could be best remembered as the one political commentator who understood Trump from the beginning and throughout his presidency, and there's a good argument that he is. And all of those conversations are also included at uh, hughforhillsdale.com.